I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. I'm Ethan Warren. And we love to watch. We love to watch says, we're not going to kill you. I don't think so. I'm not sure. I, I don't know yet. Hi guys, I'm awake. <laughs> Great. I swear. Uh, we are Ethan recording this at three in the morning. Warren is here with us. <laughs> we're trying to get into the vibe of like uh, someone who goes out at night and kills dogs. So we're recording this at three in the morning. We'll get more into that. Uh, but yeah, we're if you tuned in last week expecting this episode and instead are two hours of of dwarf on golf, we're we're back to regularly scheduled program. Our anniversary is passed. Uh, Ethan made a face when he just found out what our anniversary episode was on. Yeah, just FYI, right as you're promoting this in your feed, when they go back to what the previous episode is, people are going to know that we talked about Dwarf for quite a long time. And then... Well, Ethan, uh, I know the reason you're making a disappointed face is because you were wondering if we also covered Dorf's Golf Bible. And the answer is yes. And we covered the two. Good, because Dorf is not on the list of things you could do a reasonably length episode about, like Pete and I were just <laughs> discussing. Reasonably yeah, we, length I episode. Mean, you could do a Finding Nemo episode. I'm still looking at my wall of DVDs. You could do that in an hour and a half, but you could not do Dorf in a reasonable length of time. No, I mean, you got to go scene by scene. That's like you need the Dorf minute. Justice um, for Dorf. Which technically would be 60 minutes and we went for two hours if we did the Dorf minute. But uh, anyway, where we love to watch, we're a movie podcast. We pick a theme. We do movies over the course of the month around that theme. And if we remember, we compare and contrast. We're in our last week of the the shaggy dog days of summer where we're covering uh, L.A. modern neo-noir movies with a little bit of an asterisk with uh, one of the one of the detectives the person doing the detectives is an idiot so we've covered big lebowski we've covered inherent Vice. idiot might be some strong for some of these but inherent vice we covered the nice guys and now we're doing under the silver lake which is uh, a movie i was very excited to do because it was one that i kept missing even though the director of this movie not as peter said in a previous episode uh, robert david chapman he had his own accolades that he got um, unrelated David Robert Mitchell who directed I think one of our favorite movies of 2016 Peter it was very high in both of our lists when we did that which was It Follows uh, this was his follow up to It Follows and It we're going to talk about this it, it was shelved for a year no one watched it including myself um, but then a I lot of people so many times I know I saw your letterbox logging and then some people like Ethan Warren our guest who will let introduce himself in just a second here and other people were like oh my god this movie rules and a lot of people returned to it and um, it made a ton of sense to cover in this month because it is I think I think it's on the cusp of a cult following uh, there's a lot of passionate advocates out there you were early on that bus Ethan um, but I, spoiler alert for when we get into the movie, I count myself as one of those now because I love this movie. So I'm really, really excited to talk about it. And it, it broke the curse that we talked about throughout this, Peter, which is, um, 
some of these movies where it's the mystery is secondary and the um and the characters and the tone and, and the aesthetic is primary you end up not liking as much the first time because you're like what the fuck is going on in this movie and you miss all that stuff and i i feel like i avoided it this time i feel like i only cared so much about what was going on at any point that i was able to absorb uh, all of the the great little character moments and then still left the movie going oh wait holy shit is he but we'll we'll get to that. And, and uh, you were well, and you were well primed for that because we've been spending weeks yeah. now talking about these movies where you're like, the mystery is not important, man. Yeah, and I don't yeah. think there's any real definitive answer to whether he is or not. But we'll get into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have and a that's almost secondary. On it like that means something to me. But like, yeah, the whole point of the movie is not just like the other movies we covered this month. The whole point is not having a perfect crystalline understanding at the end of this like you would with a standard mystery story um, where you can perfectly sort out important information in red herrings like you're solving a word problem in an SAT question. Um, The point is that there's sort of loose wild ends and going down that character journey is the whole point of the game. But yeah, we talked about that every other episode this month and and previously this year, something in the dirt. Oh, yeah, that's a really great example. I do think, though, if you look at Core Mystery, one of the things that maybe accepts it from even that is it, it really does have a very clear, this is what happened to the person that he was <laughs> yeah. chasing. And that answer is hilarious and sad. And we'll we'll get there. But, like, the main crux of the mystery is, like, it is a weird mystery. It does get solved. And it has enough bizarreness to to kind of sink you more into the aesthetic. So with that though, we'll get more into, do we say the movie is under the silver lake? <laughs> Just to be clear. Very professional here. <laughs> I, well, what does it matter? Um, yeah. We're, it's under the silver lake. Uh, the follow up to it follows. Ethan is our guest. We on a previous episode, Ethan, we said we weren't going to rate all of them, but that we joked that we have guests that are, um, uh, we feel like they're doing us a favor when they come on the show. <laughs> we have people that were even, and then we have people that we feel like uh, uh, we're doing them a favor when they come on the show. And we said that you specifically, this is in reference to that, we feel like you're doing us a favor whenever you come on the show, <laughs> Ethan. You're well, well above us in station is what we're saying. At the very least, this relationship certainly began with you being nice to me and inviting you, <laughs> inviting me on your show, rather. Um, so I, I'm very grateful for that. And, you know, my life has changed in a variety of ways that I will not assign any status value to. But I love doing this show and I want to do this show a couple times a year. So don't you be silly goose about it. Well, yeah, we didn't like say there wasn't up. We didn't say there wasn't upward no mobility. Friends, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like. Um, we, we go back to the old days, back before you were uh, established, uh, in fact, before you were Guillermo del Toro retweetable. Oh, uh, you right. Know, that back. was, that was funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but Ethan, assuming people don't know who you are, uh, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience and talk about some of the things you have coming down the pike? Well, um, my name is that Ethan Warren and I love to watch. And I recently wrote a book called The Cinema of Paul Thomas Anderson, American Apocrypha, which is available now wherever you get your books. And uh, apparently physical bookstores in England, which drives me crazy. I had no idea. It drives me crazy in that positive way where you drive driven crazy with joy. Um, Because I sort of thought you could only buy it on the Internet. But no, real stores. Um, English stores. English stores. And uh, You can't pay dollars. 
to promote that, I did do a podcast mini series called Pod Thomas Anderson on the One Heat Minute Network, which the two excellent boys, Aaron Armstrong and Pete Moran, both guested on excellently. And now I'm. We did talk on... that up during the inherent vice. I think that's where that's some true. Of the, uh, the, the the guest rating <laughs> discussion you, came from. Fair we enough. gave you plugs that you didn't have to do. Yeah. Which is, I Thank think, you. What everyone's looking for. Um, and now I'm working on another show for One Heat Minute called The Great Henson Caper, which is coming out this fall. And once again, we'll have appearances from two very good boys named Aaron Armstrong and and Pete Moran. So that's fun. And yeah, that, that was a blast. Um, and then I'll put in one more quick plug for my new podcast, newer than that, or that I am newly added to, which is Authorized Novelizations, which is a wonderful podcast that I just recently got added to the host rotation on. So check that out where you get your podcasts and you know there's a lot of podcasts to listen to yeah that's amazing and that's also for a long time ethan has been a extreme passion of yours you talked about the home alone novelization that must have been like 2017 yeah that you were talking about that we i think even on the muppet christmas carol episode which is now like 2019 we talked about there was a novelization of the Muppet Christmas Carol version, and you were all so yeah. That I am excited to listen to that because a I didn't know that podcast existed, and two I I was obsessed with novelizations, and I can't imagine a better host for it. So uh, excited for that one. We got yeah, some really rolls. good stuff coming up. We got Men in Black with Patrick Willems is coming up. We got oh my goodness, I'm bringing on so many of my buddies. We got to get you guys on that show. We got I love so much on. good stuff coming. Yeah. Um, so let's start about talking about Under the Silver Lake. So this is probably the movie that needs the most introduction that we're talking about this month. Um, at the broadest strokes, this uh, here's the thing about this movie. This the movie that it reminded me the most, like from not from like a tone or anything like that, but just general like energy and vibe, both in the way. Uh, it was received and also like length and also just overall, I think like a, a, it's very talented writer and director really going for broke. It reminded me a lot of Southland Tales, right? Which was Richard Kelly's follow up to the very well received and call hit uh, Donnie Darko. And he made this like, you know, it's almost like three hours long, at least in the cut that got released this like we covered it on the show many years ago, and even though I don't think we were we, – we were definitely positive on the movie overall, but just noted that it represented an incredible amount of just – I have a vision, I have a past to do something, and I am going to put everything I can in something that like – I don't know if you interviewed Richard Kelly – and asked him, did you think that was going to be a hit or were you just like, I'm going to take all the money and put everything on screen – I don't know what he would say to that. I have to imagine if you put him under a lie detector, he might go, I don't I don't know. It's it's very a unique vision. And it's also just not something that resonates. It's weird enough that it's not going to resonate with at least popular audiences, although you can understand why he would assume that it would connect with you know, independent audiences and people that love Donnie Darko. Had a great cast, everything else. This is what that reminds me of, because it follows an incredibly popular for an indie perspective uh, a movie that had a somewhat of a simple concept, right? It's a horror movie where this person follows you and it's going to keep coming to you. And if it touches you, you die. And it just keeps kind of going on this lineage and had a lot of metaphors of like, you know, sex and strip away all the messaging, strip away all the indie trappings 
it's a it, it's a movie that you could take anyone to and they would get something from it. My wife, who's not like a big uh, seek out weird weird horror movies, we saw it in theaters and she liked it just as much as me. It was it was like a, a well made great movie for the masses. And then he you know he gets then a lot of credibility and people are excited for his next movie. And I think even though this is a movie that I think is generally more successful than Southland Tales, it feels cut from the same cloth because he is doing something that I think on paper, I'm kind of surprised that they approved the script beyond just it being a follow up and probably getting him some stuff. Because even though I enjoyed this quite a lot, I can understand why A24 sat on it for a year and, and kind of went, what the fuck do we do with this thing? This is a two hour and 40 minutes starring Andrew Garfield as someone who is just kind of going from episode to episode uh and bizarre mystery stuff. And again, this is a genre that just generally hasn't been all that financially successful. Ethan, you talk about in your book that Inherent Vice was kind of the worst received for both uh, critically and financially of Paul Thomas Anderson's career. And it's like the same, it's the same thing. Even Big Lebowski, Lebowski bombed. Was, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like they, they all kind of like people. I don't know if it bombed. I just I, I said that with such confidence. I have no idea if Lebowski bombed, but it did not. It, it was not received as warmly as the uh, one it preceded. Fargo. Yeah, yeah, financially. Like it, I, 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 well, one thing we talked about a lot while there was critics that liked it and it did OK financially, um, like it made its budget back on like some of these other ones. It was everyone was kind of like, well, this is a disappointing follow up to follow to Fargo. And I talked about I saw Fargo first. Big Lebowski was my second Coen Brothers. And at the time, I was like, what the fuck is this? Like, this is not what I was expecting from them. I think like I know these movies worked in the 40s and 50s, regardless of what we think of about them, which I think is generally positive. I am going to say that audiences have sort of said loudly and clearly over the last 20 years we don't like these movies <laughs> and this is like very much we don't like these movies with someone with a lot less um a, a director namesake as a paul thomas anderson or cohen brothers um or and with less recognizable stars everything else so like this movie seems upon watching it and loving it quite a bit like it was doomed to fail from a financial perspective. And it, it did. It had an $8 million budget and made $2 million. I think we've uh, also proven that the superhero world <clears throat> does not create crossover uh, crossover uh, movie stars. right? Like yeah. An- Andrew Garfield did not have a legion of amazing Spider-Man fans uh, coming out to theaters to see Under the Silver Lake. Just as Tom Holland did not have a legion of people uh, going out to see Cherry or what have you. Um, I mean, it uh, didn't help that no one liked those movies. Yes. <laughs> Especially yes. Amazing Spider-Man 2. <laughs> but you, you understand yeah. what I'm saying. Yeah. Like, there's a... I was specifically even pointing at, it's, it's at the Spider-Man. Um, well, even something like Doolittle, which we've talked about, like, that was that was basically, like, Robert Downey Jr. Tell me you didn't do a Doolittle episode. <laughs> we did not. No, we did not. But we... Okay. I, we it, th- like, I do think that's a good example of, like, here's... Robert Downey Jr., theoretically one of the, like, if you talk about, like, box office returns, the biggest box office return draws uh, in the world that's ever existed. He hasn't done a non-Marvel movie since The Judge in 2013. He does this, like, Disney property of a theoretically recognizable character, and everyone just goes, this looks fucking stupid. Like, that doesn't even translate to, like, making its budget back, let alone being successful. So, yeah, Andrew Garfield, everyone's 
third or fourth favorite Spider-Man, depending if you count cartoons, uh, yeah, was not very big. But he's he's fantastic in this. Like, he's perfectly cast in this. And I want to take, like, just one, one step back. Um, yeah. The reason that I wanted to cover this for the show was because we were looking at, I was looking at lists for, like, neo-noir movies set in L.A., shaggy dog mystery movies, movies that have been compared to Big Lebowski, and I came up with, like, a list of ten movies. And the, the order, the, which movies we picked this month kind of changed over time. Um, we've referenced Long Goodbye a few times, but we haven't covered it. I'd love to do another one of these these months. But this is a movie that I watched it not at release, because it was... At the time, there I didn't hear a lot of people telling me to rush out to the theater. But in 2020, I watched it, and uh, I had sort of like an okay reaction to it. I found the score and the aesthetics of it gorgeous, and I, yeah. I, I found it compelling enough to to watch and finish. But I remember specifically writing, and I'm going to make this story short because it's very boring to talk about things you've written in the past on Letterboxd. Um, specifically writing, like, I think I will like this at a second glance. I think the first time through... This is a little bit tough to to get your teeth into. I wasn't quite primed. I like, kind of had a sense I wasn't primed for it, or I didn't watch it in the right spirit, maybe. And then Ethan commented also, like, oh, I love this movie. I'm already in love with this movie. Like, uh, you're wrong. You should love this movie. Uh, no, he didn't say it in a mean way. Um, but the movie stuck with me for a while, and then I came, I came back to it later, and I was like, what is this? Like, why is that? Why do I keep thinking about this movie that I gave three stars on Letterboxd? And I came back to it and I was like, oh, I was completely wrong. Like, the pieces started to click into place the way that the pieces start to click in place for people with Inherent Vice and Big Lebowski and the other movies that we've, we've covered that are in this vein. And I immediately was like, we have to do the Shaggy Dog LA month because now I need to talk about Under the Silver Lake uh, with you guys specifically. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm glad that's, that's how we're here. Uh, also, really quickly... The first Andrew Garfield movie I watched was a movie called Boy A, which is about um, a youth offender who is trying to re uh, readapt into a society after getting out of prison. Um, and I remember being like, Andrew Garfield's such a great actor. I really hope that, you know, there's, there's, he's got to have great things in his career. And then he did have some really great roles, but like the amazing Spider-Man swallowed him up for like a big chunk of time <laughs> right in the middle. And I remember being like, oh, all right. Maybe see you on the other side of this. And this is the movie where I was like, oh, I did see you on the other side. Thank you. Thank you for doing interesting work again, Andrew Garfield. I have your your original letterbox review pulled up here. I just wanted a couple of highlights. You have to sit through 100 minutes before you get past sad boy dragging himself around L.A. boredom. <laughs> this film so self-consciously tries to pinch pinch on that it ends up feeling like the recessive brother. Pinch pinch on's pretty cute. I'll give you that. Thank you, thank you. Um, um, so, but Ethan, you like this right away. Yeah, you. I mean, I saw your you like three letterbox reviews. Maybe it's two, but like, I have three letterbox reviews. I bet maybe not. It's, <laughs> maybe it's two. I don't remember, but I but I noticed that you we watched this a couple times and early. Did you get a chance to see this in theaters? Well, how were you? Were you a huge fan of It Follows? Peter and I have talked for a movie we haven't actually covered on the show. We've talked about that movie endlessly over the years. So. I have only reviewed this uh, three times, but I'm pulling up my stats of most watched Letterbox because I suspect it is it is high on the list. Um, I was right about this, the three reviews. Yes, I've I have seen this movie a great number of times. I think I didn't log it the first time, and I'll tell you why. This yeah. movie leaked on all the torrent sites um. after Can, 
um, when it, oh, I guess it wasn't after Cannes. It was, it, it came out in Europe first. There was the disastrous yep. Cannes screening. Yeah. Uh, Much a- like Southland Tales. Yeah, absolutely. Um, A24 got cold feet, pulled it from release, but it came out in England and, or in France and, and Europe. And it was then available on torrent sites. And just out of curiosity, I downloaded it because I was not a huge It Follows fan. Um, I was like, I was an It Follows respecter. And did you guys see Myth of the American Sleepover? I almost watched it for this, but I have not seen it. Um, I think that movie's kind of a chore. <laughs> and so I, I just sort of watched this almost out of that, like, just almost illicit sense of like, well, I can, so I yeah. will. Yeah. Um, with it, can with another N and an E and an S. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and so <laughs> I did. And immediately I was like, this is something. Yeah. Um, I've been watching the bear and, and when the, sh- when the chefs on the bear will taste something with that's clearly like complex and weird, it might not work. They just go, well, it's something. <laughs> and that's, that's how I felt about this. And then I kind of couldn't stop thinking about it. And it, it came out here finally. And the day it came out, I started circulating people being like, so what did you think of it? And they were like, I didn't watch that. And I was like, <laughs> I literally can't. <laughs> well, you gotta. Yeah. Um, and so, <laughs> Then I, I did end up um, right around the time that it was um, peaking a little bit in the cultural consciousness to the extent that it ever has. I wrote about 7,000 words on it for Brightwall Darkroom. It must have just hit at the right moment when people were kind of interested in it because it became the most read essay in the site's history. Um, oh, wow. And, and still has really like bonkers good uh, Google SEO. Um, I think I it's because I wrote seven thousand words, so every word is in that essay. So if you <laughs> if you Google like under the silver lake, God, I don't anything. know un, under the, the silver lake anything is going to pop up. It's going to pop up for you. So um, <laughs> if you include the entire dictionary, the search engine is looking for those words. Yes, because our most listened to episode is still Sunshine, and like which of all the movies we've covered, it's just one that I think people go oh. Not that many people have covered it to the extent, um, or at least before a blank check to their Danny Boyle month or whatever <laughs> segment or whatever. And so, like, if you were looking for content, podcast content on the movie Sunshine, it was probably the only one for a while. Yeah. Um, so I think this movie is really special, and and we'll get into it. I could just unroll my uh, spiel right now, yeah. but but let's let's let it happen. Yeah. So before we kind of get through the plot, I think. I kind of want to come back to something I mentioned why I don't think it's as inaccessible as Lebowski or even Inherent Vice. Um, So the thing about Lebowski and Inherent Vice, and I I know some of this doesn't fit perfectly, but I I do think as a thesis it, it does. So the thing about Lebowski is that there is a lot of conspiracies and things going on and mysterious stuff, but none of it actually touches the central plot of Where's Bunny. She went to L.A. and then everyone did some things. And clearly there's enough seedy stuff going on that you could investigate it. But ultimately the movie isn't investigating it because it had not, none of it had anything to do with Bunny. It's all <laughs> Bunny's, plot is, Bunny's plot is at house, goes to Palm Springs, back at house. <laughs> yeah. It's their entire story. So part of the fun of that movie is that, like you said, like – not like we talked about nothing really ultimately matters as it relates to the central mystery of Big Lebowski. Inherent Vice, I think there clearly is a 
conspiracy. There is um, some evil entities, but the exact nature of it may be as simple as they're drug dealers and there's a cop who like it may be super complex and have far reaching implications. It may not. It ultimately is, you know, there's we talked about that. The overarching taking down the bad guys or a or a major mystery gets sidetracked for saving an individual care. This is a movie where the mystery also has tons of red hair herrings, tons of weird asides. You literally are following a character who is writing stuff in his notebook and not knowing what he doesn't have a job. He doesn't have any other reason. You don't you don't know what he's connecting or not connecting or what matters because he's not the most reliable person how unreliable he is is up for a little bit of debate but ultimately like he has no training he's not hired on this case he's met someone he knew for an hour maybe um and now is set off to to solve everything in this person's life the difference is and why i think it's not as inscrutable as those other movies or even if you go back to some of like the 40s and 50s noirs that do this type of raymond chandler thing is that there is a absolutely bizarre mystery at the center that our protagonist does end up getting to the bottom to in a definitive fashion. Spoilers for the ending, if you want to be surprised by this, the girl that's gone missing ends up in a conspiracy to be buried alive in pyramids in these, like, sex triads, um, and then live life there until their soul ascends. And by the time he does find out that this conspiracy is real, far-reaching, exists, has some sort of, like, magistrate of the hobo king who lives under the hills of Hollywood and stuff like that, the movie's terminology, not mine, art, our, our uh, damsel in distress, like so many of these movies have, is already it's too late. She's literally buried under concrete in her in her pyramid. There is another group that theoretically he could rescue, but instead he kind of decides maybe I should be a part of it and gets rejected for reasons we'll talk about later. So I do think that's why this this movie actually from from almost all the other movies that kind of do this, or at least the neo noirs that do this. Um, actually has the kind of grand mythical conspiracy that gets revealed that those other movies really don't. Even The Nice Guys, which has a conspiracy, is just like, the conspiracy is just rich guys want to do car stuff <laughs> and want to kill someone who's going to ruin their plans. Like it's, they want to avoid it's, regulation. Yeah, the, the tantalizing idea of like something bigger in the hills of Hollywood, Mulholland Drive, David Lynch style, never materializes in most of these movies and ends up being down to earth. This one is is down to earth in that it could physically, technically happen, but it is as grand and surprising as is promised, and it's definitively answered in a way that actually puts a button not on how we got here and why these things exist and why there's a hobo king, but at least where the girl ended up and why she is unsavable without being literally fridged and removed yeah. from the equation. So I, I think that what separates this, what makes this movie unique and what separates it from the other movies we're covering this month. Um, so if you look at something like Lebowski, right? Truly, until he has sex with Maude at the end and has some sort of eureka moment, I think every single thing he comes up with is wrong. Yeah. Um, every conspiracy theory he has, every idea he has, every lead he follows is pretty much just wrong. Uh, Walter is usually wrong for a different reason. Um, and uh, obviously Donnie just wants to go to in and out Burger. And uh, inherent vice, more traditional mystery structure. He's he's 
Doc's right about some things. He's wrong about some things. You know, he kind of stumble fucks his way forward, but he also does some really good detective work. It's it's sort of a mishmash of between the two uh, polar ends um, in a way that I find very compelling. Um, this is interesting because it feels like he's stumble fucking forward like Lebowski. Yeah. And you feel like he's just going to end up in a dead end somewhere or dead in an alley somewhere more accurately. Yeah, he's literally um, translating music backwards for codes, which is yes. like the lamest possible. But the of point is it wrong. works. Yeah. Like looking at an old Nintendo Power magazine and using a cereal box map of L.A. and then just fucking around near the Hollywood sign gets him to exactly where he's supposed to go. Um, and what I find interesting about this movie, and we can, yeah, exactly, Aaron, there's a lot to talk about how reliable of a narrator is, or whatever. The way that I read this movie, and will probably inform my view for the rest of the episode, is that I inform this as a movie, it's like, it's asking a basic question. Okay, so we have all these people that believe in conspiracy theories. They have some sort of underlying sadness that they're trying to avoid by throwing (laughs) themselves in these conspiracy theories. At the end of the movie, there's sort of a a whole uh, unfurling of that. Um, my take on this movie is that it's a movie about what if one of those people was absolutely right? Every one of their hunches, every weird, stupid attempt at clue solving, every time they attempt to beat someone up in a bathroom, it always takes them in in a roundabout or a direct way where they originally thought they were going. Um, whatever, whatever weird clues they follow up, that weird numerology pop the number of letters I mean, they literally the... find a guy who's written every hit song of all time living in a mansion in a town yeah, yeah. Like, that's real yeah that is that is as far as i as my take takes it uh is, is real he gets to the end he gets to the bottom and he's completely unsatisfied like you could you could give these conspiracy theorists everything everything at the end of the day they still will be left with their problems and they still will be fundamentally alone. And that's what they're running away from. And I feel like that's a amazing movie to have come out the year before COVID. Yeah. I mean, I do think it's true that like if one of the, the, I mean, everyone on this podcast that has listened for a while knows I'm obsessed with behind the curve, but I always think about like, what if they did prove it was flat, like to themselves and like, no, they are unreliable and no one would believe him anyways. And what would they end up doing about it? Like they would actually just drive themselves even more crazy by feeling like they had some sort of definitive proof. And then, well, there's nothing I can do and I have to go back to work because I have to pay my bills. And that's kind of what happens to him in this movie. He gets all the proof he needs about a conspiracy. This girl's disappeared. The guy fake died. He faked his death and he's in hiding with a sex mini sex cult or something like that. Okay, you lost your apartment. <laughs> and your car. And your car. And uh, no one will believe you. So, I don't know what your next step is here. Still yeah. alone. Ethan, what do you make of all this? Well, my read on this movie is that it is sort of the fantasy fulfillment of a severely mentally ill person. Yeah. yeah. Because Sam has all of the hallmarks of of a pretty severe mental illness. <laughs> when when he is describing the conspiracy that he believes Vanna White is is participating in through her pattern of glances. And then That's a great aside that tells us so much about his character before mm-hmm. we met him. Absolutely. Seven months. Yeah. He tracked the pattern of her glances. <laughs> and so in my mind, this is a movie about a guy who drags the real world into alignment with his own psychosis a little bit. Um Interesting. It almost feels like 
a Bugs Bunny cartoon where he can like impact the paper that he's on and he can crumple it up and tear holes in it. Like the world aligns so perfectly for Sam where the girl has the bracelet that has the code that has the magazine that he somehow owns. It's just impossible. It's all impossible. And so it takes place in a fantasy world. And in my read of it, that fantasy world is, is very much symbiotically tied to the main character's headspace. It's like he's the god of this universe somehow to me, where yeah. like the world of the universe, the world of this movie just clears the way for him. And, and <laughs> yeah. he walks through in the most remarkable way, as as you guys were just describing. Um, and I'm doing the Sam thing where he puts his hands on his head. Oh, you think that's weird? That's how I feel when I talk about this. <laughs> No, no, I, 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 I love, I, I love that interpretation of it. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's not totally out of disalignment with what I, what the way I see it, which is, yeah, the world is kind of forming around, around Tim. I would have one tweak on this, which is that I think that in this world, m- maybe multiple people have this sort of power because, okay, S- Sam's apartment is littered with pop culture. It's one of the central parts of this this uh, movie. Yeah. Um, He's got a ton of Hitchcock posters and and Jekyll and Hyde and old horror movie posters. I mean, he literally leans on Hitchcock's grave. Yes, yes. And um, what do we see when we get inside Sarah's apartment? uh, We see a poster for... How out of Mary Miller. Yeah. Like, I see that... Well, not just a poster. there are other... Like, that's the aesthetic of the room is one movie. I see perhaps... The poster and the dolls. Other magical, yeah, she's got the three Barbies. Like, perhaps yeah. there are other magical actors that are forming this world into this, like, twisted sort of, um, twisted root system. Um, and uh, it ends up conforming to both of their very strange, very toxic relationships with um, reality versus fiction. And the the acceptable form of fiction is movies. Um, it's, accept- it's acceptable, largely, to be obsessed with movies. Um, we better hope so seen, yeah as we all seen there is definitely an unacceptable form like maybe having a podcast but yeah. go um, ask all of our partners how they feel about <laughs> our... <laughs> uh but the the more uh, socially acceptable version i will say more in the qualifying sense um but uh the less acceptable one is of course um, not having a job and wandering around town, uh, chasing down uh, leads um, in your conspiracy theory that somehow always seems to match up with your your core biases and your core beliefs about the world. I also like I like the interpretation. I'm not saying this is what the movie's saying, but there is a little bit of like, you know, the concept behind the secret, which is literally like if you believe something hard enough, essentially that it it, it happens in reality and. I, I, you know, and I think not to get into like the, obviously I don't believe that's true, but, um, I think there's a lot of people who like view that in like, well, you don't actually change reality around it. It's the idea that if you were like really in tune to like this, I don't know, this like subconscious world that you actually can align, you know, what is going to happen. Like you end up with some sort of like second sight or something like that. And I, I like that idea of like, is it a question of like he in like being so committed to this is the only thing he cares about is what happened to this girl? Is he, you know, modifying the world, the secret style around you or that he's literally is able to kind of he gets everything right because he has this like 
overcommitted vision into another layer of reality that allows him to see it. Not unlike overlaying a Zelda map under another map, and now he's made those connections. He's been able to do that on reality as a whole. Yeah. And of course, the Nintendo Power Magazine must track with a chessboard. <laughs> Obviously. Obviously, there must be an A6 on the Nintendo Power Magazine. Yeah. I, I mean, I love uh, the the idea of, again, I know it's not literal, but the idea of working backwards to the people that put all this stuff in place and the coding behind it is, is much like any, like, good takedowns of, like, 9-11 conspiracies. And you go, think of all the things that someone would have had to do for this to have happened the way that you're theorizing. And this is such a funny version to walk through because it's like, First, we need to all popular songs that have ever been written, which of course come from one guy. We need one someone a long time ago decided one guy needs to write all the songs. He's got to functionally live forever, and he needs to do all these codes on the idea that someone would play only the hits backwards, find a co- you know a, a number combination which spells out a phrase to go tap James Dean's head on. Like it's it's so funny to work backwards, and I think you're right, Ethan. Like taking this movie at face value or like just a yep he uncovered a conspiracy there is no movie that's plotted like this because it you know like peter was saying every insane improbable wouldn't even make sense if you were trying to hide a conspiracy he follows um, a coyote to an essential clue (laughs) yeah yeah because because the homeless king told him to always follow coyotes right yeah um, I don't think he calls himself the homeless king. Does he call him the hobo king? I mean, is isn't he the hobo king? I mean, hobo king definitely aesthetically fits like the hobo code thing they're talking about. Right? Oh no, it's the it's the homeless king. Yeah, I've been saying hobo king. I think I got my Fisher King stuck within my. <laughs> well, I mean, the, hom- the homeless king subscribes to the hobo code, so you can see why it's that's, confusing. That's that's why you've got the scratches. There's a lot of ho- the yeah, the hobo symbols. That's what I'm. Yeah, yeah, so the yeah. problem is the movie, not me, is what I'm saying. <laughs> over under. There are no problems with uh, this movie. <laughs> <laughs> over under on David yes. Robert Mitchell learning about the hobo code thing from Mad Men. Oh, obviously. <laughs> That's where I learned about it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, it is interesting, like, uh, as someone who I haven't seen The Myth of the American Sleepover, it's no. Uh, for what it's worth, when I go through letterbox reviews, because I almost did, I'm like, I, I watched this a few days ago before we record. I'm like, I could watch. The other movie of his, and, like, no one is all that. Everyone's, like, at most, it's, like, a three-star movie. Like, you can see some talent type, which is, you know, doesn't necessarily make me rush out to go to go watch it. But it is interesting that, like, as far as I can tell, he has... he I mean, he made this movie to be released in 2018, which means he probably shot in, in 2017. It didn't come out until 2019, as far as I can tell, he has nothing going on. He uh, there's he has reports no of something. I hope there. Yeah, here we've we've got this. David Robert Mitchell and Anne Hathaway and Bad Robot team for Mystery Warner Brothers pick. That was back in okay. March. So hopefully he's working on something. It's cool. described as a thrill ride to be shot in IMAX. Although now nothing's heading into production, so Lord knows where that's headed. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I do want to discuss some of the the, the sort of um, the DNA from It Follows. There's not a ton that comes through. Um, it Follows did have a really crisp sense of production value. Very, It's a very, very well shot and knows how to make stillness dynamic, right? It's a, it's a beautiful looking movie. Um, but the 
the I hate that I'm such a sucker for this, but the thing that I love most about it follows is the score. Um, yeah, it's by a guy who's unfortunately named Disaster Piece. Disaster Piece did something very interesting with that movie, where I think the layup there would have been the layup that a lot of movies do, which is, hey. Copy the Halloweens. And he has a few songs that start riffing the Halloween score, and then he starts bringing in, um, like, Final Fantasy 8-bit style, bit-bit-tune kind of uh, theming, and then he starts bringing in other influences, like, what would you call it, like, uh, sort of EDM industrial metal kind yeah. of influences as well, and it really brings what is, some again, a layup style score. You're gonna do... A time signature that makes people uncomfortable on a synthesizer and it's a one-man job, right? Instead, he's like, actually, this is not going to be a simple thing for me. I'm going to make this more complex. Disaster Piece also did a bunch of video game scores that are absolutely worth listening to. Yeah. Even for games I don't particularly like, the score is great. Yeah, I don't like I don't like either of the game, the big games he did. But I like <laughs> the scores. I like Fez and I like Hyper Light Drifter, but I don't. Yeah, Fez has a very games. pretty score. Um and uh, but, the reason I come back to this is because Disaster Piece, again, unfortunately named, um, uh, did the score for this. And I love what he does with trying to, it's very actually similar to the Johnny Greenwood score for um, Inherent Vice, where it, it's sort of taking, it's sort of taking um, cues from classic noir, right? It's got the specific types of string stings and the specific mm-hmm. types of horn uh, sort of uh, moments of sadness or revelation. But it also like flips it on its head with like more ma- uh, more modern, um, rougher touches. And there's moments in the movie where I'm actually like very uncomfortable and nervous and scared. And you can sense some of those bone those horror bona fides coming through. The Owl Lady. I think those two home invasions are very uncomfortable to watch. Yeah, it actually remind. I love the score too. It reminded me actually of not not not, not just because Ethan's here. We're doing all Paul Thomas Anderson, but it reminded me of the Punch Drunk Glove score in that. Uh, it feels very overpowering while still like the thing about the punch trunk love score that's so good is like it's really overpowering it's kind of in your face it's there all the time but it's many times doing like almost a, i would call it aggressively aggressively sweet melodies like they're these great little like you know crescendos and like love you know but it's like loud and it's just there which matches the tone of the movie which is like aggressively in your face like love in some ways simplified but this is that same thing it is it's you're right peter it's hitting on all of those like it felt like watching a 1940s movie but instead of the score jazzily fading into the background it's in the forefront of many of the scenes and overpowering um and it's like it's it doesn't recede into the background but it like and now constantly is like announcing like we're doing a 40s film score and it's i I love it it's amazing one of my favorite lines to say about this movie is that it's a movie that feels like it's the movie itself is having a nervous breakdown (laughs) and there's there's this moment where the camera is almost at like a rat's eye view it is scurrying across there in the comic book store and the camera is scurrying across the floor for no clear reason and that is tied into the sort of overwhelming score for me and just like every little stylistic element, not in like an Edgar Wright way, but it just it feels heightened and intense yeah. in a way that um, is is the movie almost having some kind of self-awareness like in its in its yeah. very fibers. Yeah. yeah. And, and this the, the way that it shoots L.A. and it shoots L.A. At a lot of like hipster landmarks, right? Um, a lot of it takes place in LA, but obviously the titular line is Silver Lake. It's a, one of the key hipster neighborhoods of LA. Um, 
and they shoot it in I think it's called uh, the last the last bookstore. That's sort of like a famous LA hipster icon. Um, they go to the Hollywood Forever Cemetery to watch a movie. They go to like a rooftop party downtown that has like a um, uh, what's it called? Um, not interpretive art, like performance art kind of tough flourishes where everyone gets a yeah. needle. We've watched a lot of movies about LA recently, but this is the LA that I feel like I, uh, to some extent, know. And then as it gets past a certain point, it's it, it's a version of LA that's completely made up. It's this yeah. like fantasy rich people LA. So like the first half, it feels like a version of LA that I know. A lot of people struggling to pay their bills and keep their awesome uh, LA apartments with a pool or whatever, so that they could because like like it's shit is just expensive, right? It's a desirable place to live. At least, you know, weather and culture-wise, I don't know about uh, other things. You know, the, the places he goes and the way that he dresses and the way he sets up his apartment and a sort of mishmash of, like, analog pop culture in his hands. He likes Playboy mags. He likes Nintendo, an actual, like, Nintendo uh, console. Um, this feels like, but all of that together feels like an L.A. I actually know um, because of visiting my brother there for the past 10 or 15 years and living in San Diego and going up for shows and various reasons that I've been in LA that it feels so nervous that Ethan is saying in what's supposed to be a fairly calm moment like all Sam is doing is giving a number to a guy to maybe give to another guy like it's there's the stakes are in my mind that they're never going to be lower in the entire movie than this this particular interaction but that low thrumming sense of chaos in these like LA landmarks and cute little brunch places and coffee shops uh that uh, sense of discomfort absolutely is everywhere from the moment the movie starts yeah we talked a lot about the setup there's a lot to talk about in the movie you guys want to talk more about under the silver lake more than anything in the universe So I think we should handle this the way we've handled all the movies this month, because we don't have eight hours for the plot. Mm-hmm. Take the character. Let's just start walking him through his journey. Peter, you want to kick us off? Ethan, do you want to kick us off? I want to just jump in with one thing. that This was one yeah. thing I wanted to say in my loose thoughts, um, but it actually works to set this up. Um, one thing that I think is super important about this movie that does not call attention to itself is it is very much set in the year 2011 very very specifically um if only because that's i think maybe around when he started brainstorming it um but it it feels to me like an essentially 2011 movie in this weird like we're sort of halfway through the obama era everyone's still really jacked up and the future feels like anything is possible but at the same time there's like weird ominous shit going on um, that we're not quite ready to deal with yet. The birther movement is starting. Occupy Wall Street is going on. But at the same time, um, I am a little bit younger than I guess the characters would be in this movie or about the same age as some of the younger characters. It was this very like ecstatic time of just like, yeah, ah, hope, the future. 
And <laughs> then we saw what happened. And I think it's a little bit prescient almost in that way where it identifies the ominous undertones that are gathering even in 2011. Yeah, I, I think it's a good call out. And yeah, someone who was 29 in 2011 and, you know, it, it, it felt like after eight years of Bush, which was my political awakening and be like, these guys are dicks. They're the worst. Like, and then getting Obama in there and stuff like that. It was like, that's it. Healthcare. It's all solved. And it's like, Ugh. I mean, I don't know if anything was solved. Things got slightly less worse quicker, maybe in some areas. Yeah. Slightly um, less yeah. worse. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, I remember, like, 2011 and 2012, like, there was no – voting for Obama had come from this revolutionary act that, like, was the beginning of a new track for our country and our, our democracy to this, like, harm reduction movement by the time, like, 2010, 2011 came around. Like, yeah. so I, I know that feeling of, like – Theoretically, I shouldn't have to worry as much anymore. I'm also not as excited about the future as I was. <laughs> I that's, think that, that sounds about right. Yeah, that does sound about right. So that what that kind of reminds me of is that we had a, a, a flicker of in the 90s. We had this um, era called the end of history. And it was the idea that once we had completed the Cold War, <laughs> um, that we would be moving on to um, this future of, uh, you know, a- economic success but economic success via um you know uh globalization and people having real conversations again and us figuring out our problems diplomatically and yada yada and there was sort of a flicker of that again weirdly even though obama was still in two wars at the end of his presidency um and the global war on terror was still bleeding into many other countries um, there was this sense I remember at that time where it did have this feeling like the end of history. Like we're like, okay, so we got past this major hurdle. Maybe we're moving into this like post-racial world. Maybe we're starting to heal as a country from the wound of, of the wounds of the Civil War. Like maybe we're we're starting to undo the damage of um, of Jim Crow America or something, right? Um, it ended up being a mirage, but it did have this end of history kind of vibe. And the connection that I have with that is actually that the movie is about how <laughs> actually it's not about some sort of like global ethical dilemma. There's not a war between two armies. There's not in yeah. the background like I mean, this is a movie set in 2011, so it's not commies versus capitalists and shit, you know, um, the feeling in the background is like, yeah, the, the war is over. History has ended corporations have actually solved everything these me- these yeah. mega oligarchs have actually solved everything it's all sewn up you don't need to worry about anything you're going to get your pop music um you're going to get to absorb your pop culture trifles and we're going to get our messages about mm-hmm. pyramids yeah are you ready about the thong song <laughs> we're talking about thongs on the radio now <laughs> end of history <laughs> certain songs get so big that it's you know the only explanation is that they're an illuminati uh, message right yeah and someone yeah. needs well, to hear that yeah, what was the code in the thong song guys put that up against to... a fucking metroid map or something someone needs to hear that message um seven times a day for three years <laughs> yeah so pom- oh the pom- thong pom- song is wear wear a dye your hair blonde bleach your hair blonde Wear a uh, gold thong and sit below um, a statue at a Griffith Observatory. Yeah, speaking of someone having a breakdown, um, 
I, it, it's all nice when Cisco does it in a song, but if you ran to someone at a party, it's like, let me see that thong. That thong, the thong, thong, thong. <laughs> Call the police. Anyways, what happens in this movie? Yeah, I mean, I can, I can like, uh, kind of lead us let's off. Start, let's then, start guiding uh, us through. You guys can hijack whenever you like. Yeah. Um, so, we're introduced to our, our protagonist. Um, so, An- Andrew Garfield is playing sort of a sad sack L.A. guy dragging himself around Hollywood for 100 minutes. Um, he doesn't he... comb his hair until, like, minute <laughs> 140. How he got to this point is a little in- indeterminate. We know that he is single. We know that he has a pretty nice L.A. apartment that he can't afford. Um, tough breakup. We, know, we find we know out he, later on. We find out later on it's because he has a tough breakup. Um, he has... Uh, and his dog died. Star- He's he's mourning the loss of his dog, which creates one of my favorite uh, fan theories about this movie, which is that it's actually a Scooby-Doo story and that Sam is shaggy mourning the loss of Scooby. (laughs) There's a very active subreddit about this movie that I have spent a bunch of time on. This is literally what a a reveal if at the end of this this, uh, summer theme we went, it's literally a shaggy dog L.A. mystery. I didn't realize that that's where this was all headed, but, you know. What, what would Shaggy for- be like if Scooby was murdered? <laughs> it's really but. nice if uh, that reality decided to form around me. Yeah. Um, uh, but yes, so he's he's sad, uh, sad single, doesn't have a dog. Um, he does not We don't know what job. he does for work. Oh, yeah, no. he mentions that he, people, you, uh, there's something like, he has people used to ask him what he did for work, and, and people that's, he kind of talks about that he he used to I but I didn't get the sense like one of the things that I think a lot of these people these types of characters in movies is like they're aspiring screenwriters or aspiring actors um I didn't get that sense in this movie but Ethan you might be the definitive like where does this guy work we don't know and he gets very angry whenever somebody asks there's that scene where he snaps at somebody why are you always asking about work um, all we yeah. know is that he came to L.A. thinking that he was going to be extraordinary. And I think yeah. the vagueness of that is what's so interesting is it's just mm-hmm. that he feels entitled to an extraordinary life where people talk about you. But we don't know if he has any interests or talents. and He doesn't seem to. Yeah. And I think that, like, if he had come with a specific vision, right? If he was a aspiring actor that just had no ability to act, um, or if he was a writer that didn't particularly uh, take to writing or have any stories to tell, I think a common thing is that people that don't actually write still just say, oh, I'm a writer. Um, yeah. Like, it's a common thing. It's a way to avoid sadness. He doesn't like the question being no. asked at all. Yeah. Um. I think Ethan's answer is the objectively correct one as close as we can get, which is that he came expecting some sense of vague greatness because he had been taught his entire life that L.A. is where you go to be great. Um, So he kind of starts out when we meet him. He's a leering pervert. Um, I actually like, look, I'm not going to get into like, if you're a pervert, if someone is walking around on their front porch and you were already out on your front porch and they are naked, whether looking at them is a, is an act of a pervert. However, I would say, unequivocally, if you're doing it with binoculars, the answer is yes. <laughs> if you, I think if you're watching any neighbor with binoculars, like, you're not fucking Jimmy Stewart. Yeah. You're a pervert. And, uh, yeah, so he's watching his neighbor, but then he notices a new 
uh, a new lady coming to the pool, and he starts watching watching her instead. Um, and this is played by uh, Riley Co. Riley Keo. Keo. Um, yeah. Granddaughter of Elvis Presley. Yeah. Singer, actor, she can do everything. All around, just remarkable. Yeah, yeah. check out Elvis if you haven't heard of him. He's uh, <laughs> very famous. Um, maybe one of the most famous people that's ever lived. So you should check him out. Uh, but anyways, and there's a yeah, movie just... about him directed by Baz Luhrmann that I saw 13 times. <laughs> that I logged it on was... Letterboxd every time. <laughs> it was his pre. This is that was your like 2023 under the silver light. There's secret messages hidden in that movie if you just watch it backwards. <laughs> I did see like every every other day there was a new Elvis review from from Ethan. Uh, but anyways, uh, so yeah, he he starts watching her. He gets caught and is like, I wasn't masturbating. Um, that was that's the kind of the motion that he does. He gets asked that directly later, and then he's very upset by it. But um, yeah, he I think he then just calls his kid the girl that he's sleeping, one of the girls he's sleeping with, and he's like, come over. Right? Yeah. She yeah, just shows he, up. No, it's she it's just shows okay. up. her name is oh, just that's right. her name is just actress. Another thing I love about this movie, there's something like eighty credited roles and something like three of them have names. So her name uh, is actress. And yeah, so yeah, she comes over, they sleep together. Yeah, so if that could describe was... what they do. <laughs> yeah. Ethan, if you'd like to take the, the They lead, make love. I believe know, they the, you could say they rut. They rut? <laughs> Actually, Ethan, if you could not say what they do, um, <laughs> yeah, I take it back. <laughs> um, but yeah, they they have they have sex, and I feel like the scene is in- indicative of like the overall movie, which is like he is obsessed with uh, he's obsessed with pop culture, and they're watching TV together as they um, notice yeah. the central conspiracy of the movie is starting to kick in, which is that a guy named Jefferson Sever- uh, Jefferson Sevens um, weird name. Um, a famous billionaire and who appears to be famous in LA for being a billionaire. He's not yeah. like an entertainment mogul or anything. He's just an, one of the elite class has died uh, or sorry, has gone missing. Um, we'll find out later that he has died. He's they faked d- his death. Yeah. And but they do find records eventually. What's happening here is that uh, sort of in the background, this is happening. And then Sam immediately decides that the entire movie needs to be not just about this, missing billionaire but about him that he is the one that can solve this case of the missing billionaire um but he's about to get involved in another case which is hold on really really quickly beautiful woman which on before we move off that scene that sex scene is so funny because like i understand sometimes people like i start having sex with the tv on commenting on what's happening in the news while you're having sex is like an ultimate act like it, it like immediately i was kind of in love with this movie because it was it was very funny how both of them ethan you called it running like it does feel like they they might as well be doing fucking sit-ups and doing calisthenics <laughs> because they are so uninterested or like this is just what we do together it's how we spend time that they're like oh that's weird. like they're commenting about about all the people in the news and like never breaking a their stride yeah and i would say it's a medium to high level of involvement for sex which makes it funnier right like they're doing doggy style which requires both partners to be somewhat more active than i would say missionary or some some other positions yeah um so it requires medium to high level of sorry they're doing what style (laughs) yes (laughs) 
Uh, they're doing it all the style. Ethan's uh, put another connection into the movie. There's, <laughs> there... It's all there. <laughs> this is a shaggy, doggy-style L.A. mystery. Yep. Um, Ethan is the Sam about this movie. Kind of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, um, but but yeah, so the, the the that is that is indicative of the sort of sense of humor of this movie, where sometimes you're just like that is fucking absurd, um, and it's just it's just a weird image. It, it, it's indicative of the relationship. It tells you everything you need to know. She's not that particularly important. But the reason that I want to pause here for just an extra second is thematically, I think it absolutely matters that we get to see his relationship with women, which is that like. He has, like, a fuck buddy that he has no particular interest in, except for being a fuck buddy. He has obsessions outside of that. This fuck buddy appears to have no internal impact on him. Maybe this fuck buddy was a previous obsession that they transitioned into this role. I don't know. But he, he has these obsessions. He's staring at the coffee shop girl. He's staring at Riley Keough. He's staring at these girls at this party. Like, he has these fixations. Um... And uh, he, he imparts on them importance that maybe is um, not particularly fair, but he's not an incel, right? Um, well, I do, he just but I has do... an unhealthy relationship with women, and he's handsome enough that apparently he has some success romantically. So I think this is kind of just skipping ahead to the overall like theme of the movie when it comes to like, I do think this movie is about like, uh, especially like some of it is specific around LA culture, but I think it's just generally about men in general. Uh, yes, all men um, have like um, literally like almost no interest in the people that are in front of them and instead kind of, or can kind of invent someone from whole cloth without any, like their involvement in, in the kind of plot that they're creating or the romance that they're creating. And that's like very literal in this movie because like the person that he is obsessed with and like theoretically in love with or like wants to save is someone who is not present for the entire movie. And he's concocted this entire thing out of whole cloth while like, whether it's the balloon girl or other people that are showing some level of interest, like it's not like he's not going to not have sex because again, that's all he, it's a surface level physical pleasure for him. And the person that he's invested any interest in is someone who is not present. She's not participating in his, like, it's not so much like she's not, uh, reciprocating his feelings or like they have a relationship of like neighbors and he's made it more than what it is and like reacting to every little moment and touch like that. She's non-existent and he's created all, all of this. And so much so that like it kind of boils up in the end when they finally talk on their video phone because they don't have anything to say to each other. Why would they? She's just like, oh, interesting. Like she has no connection. And he does like what you should leave the pyramid for me even before she, he finds out that you can't like we hung out for a couple hours. Yeah. Like he doesn't even know what to say because he, he was more interested in the, in the fantasy. Like, and I, that the movie goes out of its way with the women in it. And I think some people and have, have considered it that like, it's, it's dismissive of women or, 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 or falling into like the, the detective trope where women are just like objects within the protagonist. But I, I do think that's missing a little bit of the point that like uh, Andrew Garfield, Sam, not a great person and uh, doesn't have a great relationship with women. And the film is very aware of that and calling that out constantly. And and, and that goes all the way up from him. Who's a nobody up to Jefferson sevens who yeah. literally wants one of each. 
Yeah, uh, triples is best. A, a blonde, a brunette, and a redhead in his in his pyramid. Um, women are to be desired and then discarded, right? Um, I think that the idea that he he grabs onto uh, he grabs onto these women, and then as soon as they leave the movie or leave his interest zone, um, he kind of just like moves on and doesn't even care about them. A woman is shot in front of him, and he's like, "Well, that's kind of sad." Anyways. A woman is shot while making out with him in a reservoir. (laughs) I mean, I also think if this many women told me that I stunk, I would want to do something about it. And he has no interest in addressing it in any capacity. It's the skunk. He He can't do anything about it. He tried the tomato juice. Do you think he has two tomato juice uh, uh, budgets going on here? I mean, I feel like you could try again. (laughs) I'm saying he's on a fixed I wouldn't give income. Up. <laughs> yeah. He's on no income. <laughs> um, yeah, it's so funny he... that in this movie, there's apparently all these billionaires that money means absolutely nothing to, and he doesn't even, like, stumble on a backpack of cash. They don't deal in money. Money is for little people, for the billionaires. They have, like, objects that are worth $100,000 they barely look at. Well, he doesn't, I mean, he doesn't seem to care about it either. The whole, one of the subplots running through the movie is that he's about to get evicted from his apartment in five days, and he's like, okay, yeah, give me a little more time and I'll get it. At no point do we see anything in the movie, even like a call to his mom, where he seems to be interested in getting it. Like, he, I mean, like, the the lack of plan or the lack of addressing that he does unless he's talking to the the landlord of the police about it is like is humorous of how yeah. little he seems to care. Um, but anyway, so yeah, she, uh, he, she, they hang out, they watch part of um, how to marry a millionaire. She, they're going to hang out later that day. Uh, when he, when he goes back, she's gone. The apartment's cleared out and he catches someone else going in and taking a box out of the closet. He confronts the landlord and is like, isn't it weird that this happened? He's like, it happens all the time. People <laughs> clear out in the middle of the night. It's normal. This here's, also starts Here's to a run question. With... Here, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Um, no, no. Something from this earlier scene that it just occurred to me, this watch, there's the scene where um, he is, Sam is spending the evening with Sarah and they step outside and there's fireworks and yeah. Sam goes, it's weird that there's fireworks this time of year. Is that the signal to Sarah that, like, it's time to move out? The moment has come. I mean, it must, because she does change pretty quick. And yeah. she's like, no, 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 we'll talk tomorrow. Like, and it, it seems to be, like, heavily isolated so that she can see it from her view, mm-hmm. like, over there. So I could see that being the case. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's I think that's uh, that's pretty clear. Or, Ethan... Um, Please. Um, well, not clear out. enough that it took me until uh, the sixth viewing or whatever to notice it. <laughs> no, I, I, I do think it's amazing how this movie rewards extra viewings because there's just a, a, a million tiny little details, characters that show up at one party and show up later. Yeah. Um, that you feel like this world is this rotate, rotating set of um, cogs and wheels that. Um, are so above Sam that he doesn't have a sense of it. There's all these hot women going to parties that are being rotated in before they get pushed onto like a conveyor belt to be processed into something else. Yeah. Um, when he finds out that Sarah's gone, he goes and tries to figure out what's happening. One of the things that he does is he finds two kids that are around there and starts to kind of beat the shit out of them. And I'm like, who does this guy think he is? Zach Braff? Uh, okay. Sorry. I got it. Thank you. 
Uh, it wasn't subtle. I said it loud. <laughs> some some would say I ruined the joke delivery, but just to, I I think it's a good reminder that Zach Braff beat up a couple kids, and we know about this not from the episode, but Zach Braff talked about it many years later. Said I beat the shit out of a twelve year old, and they couldn't air most of it. Just to, and then his best friend Donald Faison confirms the story. Yeah, just kind of a weird thing about Zach Braff that people don't talk about enough. I think that he pummeled a child. Um, I think that's I think that's an early sign in this movie. I feel like people were when they watch these movies, they have a, have a generally um, of of late um, lost any ability to determine whether or not we're supposed to be on the character side. I think him um, beating up three children just for being little shits is is perhaps um, a determining factor. I could be sympathetic for somebody that just, like, doesn't want to work anymore. I don't particularly want to work. I could be sympathetic for somebody having money problems. I could be sympathetic for someone feeling alone and maybe becoming very attached to a beautiful woman. I can, I, I, not in particular, can be sympathetic to a guy whose car gets keyed and, or whatever, and then he, or peed on, and he, and he, uh, it's like, you know what I'm gonna do? See how hard I can punch a child in the face. It's not a sympathetic uh, act, I would say. So, to get back to, like, when they take the box out of the closet, it's three other girls, and he starts following them. I just want to talk about how funny this goddamn chase is, because it it, they, it moves to maybe one of the most inefficient moves. So, he's following them in their car, they get out of place, they head to this dock. And you think it's, like, a dock, like, in every other chase movie, where they're fucking getting on a motorboat or something. Instead, they get on the slowest possible conveyance that I think you can do in the water over swimming, which is the paddle boats you do with your feet, which is... I'm not going to spend a long time ranting about it, but I I have no enjoyment on those things. I think the the motion you do with your feet, it's not like you're pedaling a bike. You're at a weird angle. You're pedaling. It's immediately both, like tiring and works very specific muscles that at least i don't work even from like walking or riding bike or or other things like that and it's so goddamn slow it is the slowest thing in the world and the fact that they get on a paddle boat to go across a very small man-made lake i think just to the other side where they hand the box to a pirate a literal pirate who runs off with it is so fucking funny and then he, I love it and so he goes like damn it like yeah there's no way you can catch a pirate in this thing <laughs> No, he can't, like, circle around and get ahead of him. He's he's trapped in the middle of the lake in a paddle boat. And the pirate has violated all laws, because traditionally a pirate chase would be done on the open seas, which is, yeah. at this particular moment, Sam's domain. Ha-ha. Uh, but this pirate appears to be... Um, some sort of land some pirate. <laughs> some sort of yeah. land pirate. <laughs> yeah. Why wouldn't they just start at that point of the lake, too? Like, it's, a, <laughs> it's like a golf course lake. Um, the pirate does continue to reemerge. I did we get closure on the pirate? I don't know if we do. I would not be surprised if the pirate, when he takes off his pirate costume, is a different character in the movie. And it's just I haven't looked that closely at him. Um, the other two like probably worthwhile characters to talk about as he starts like continuing on his mystery are as one is Alan, who is played by one of my favorite people, Jimmy Simpson, the McPoyle, Jimmy Simpson. Uh. Most recognizable as the as the uh, Winky's Diner guy in Mulholland Drive, but he does bring a nervous energy to. Everything Wait, whoa, he whoa, does. whoa! We're we're you're you're confusing your uh, your under the Silver Lake characters because there's um what's his name Pat oh Patrick sorry or other. yeah yeah I am yeah there's Alan who's the Patrick Fusla how do you say his name oh his name is just Comic Fan yeah <laughs> yeah 
uh, who wrote the who writes the under the under the Silver Lake. Yes. This so I like yeah. I like both of these. I like Alan as well, who's from It's Always uh, Sunny in Philadelphia, and he's a very uh, very weird guy that he starts meeting at parties. Who I don't I don't get a sense of like, and I think it's deliberate. Like he's just off putting in a way that's very unspecific. <laughs> I don't true of just Jimmy Simpson as a presence, unfortunately. <laughs> true. <laughs> but he's not like quite doing the like McDoyle McPoyle brother thing from It's Always Sunny, where he's like aggressively he seems friendly and nice, but it's like a little bit too not okay. I don't You get the sense know. that these people were at some point like friends of uh a transactional friends, that they had some sort of um arrangement here or in even in the sense that alan like um likes having um likes having sam as like a witness to his greatness because it seems like alan maybe has some sort of success um alan can pick up bar tabs notably um (laughs) alan actually gets invited to these parties and sam is decidedly not and just runs into alan at them is is the the crucial distinction right yeah there's also in the world sam is just sort of passing through it yeah there's also a band that keeps playing at this party it's going to be very important they're the band they decoded which is called jesus and the brides of dracula Mm -hmm. um he eventually does confront jesus and like is like you i after he decodes the hidden messages and beats the shit out of him while he's on the toilet and he's like no, the, you decoded the messages for the three songs I didn't write. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, hold on. Hold on. I don't know if this is, this is... I'm only turning this question to Ethan. What are they trying to communicate with this weird, diseased-looking feces? Yeah. There are people... I have an answer for that right away. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you would. I spent the most time on it. <laughs> no, there are people who have tried to interpret the shape of the feces as a hobo code, but it was never uh, agreed upon. Oh, so you don't have an answer. You have theories. I have other people's theories. theories. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I personally find the feces code thing uh, pathetic. However, (laughs) if we look at the pattern that was pissed into a wall in one scene, I find... But yeah, I was just curious because there's a lingering shot to prove that he was actually shitting and was not sitting down peeing. I I don't know what that communicates. And the prop master had to put it together. (laughs) The prop master was like... I know how to make fake feces. Usually it's for a purpose. But yeah, uh, there, there's uh, following up the chain. Uh, let's really quickly stick with comic book guy. Um, okay. Who has uh, also has a, a strange obsession with Hollywood. He collects the face masks or the, the living masks. They're not death masks. The living masks of famous Hollywood people. Um, and, and Abraham Lincoln as well. And Abraham Lincoln. Yeah. Um, I mean, he died at at the theater. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, the show must go on. Even Killed by a frustrated dogs. actor. Much like, yeah. yeah, the dogs. Okay. Yeah. You could say the second half of the American experiment is a large play. Um, sometimes tragic, sometimes comedic. I mean, he was uh, a very successful sorry. actor. He wasn't. He wasn't frustrated at his ability to act. He was frustrated at Abraham Lincoln. That's a good yeah. point. That's a good point. <laughs> yeah. Um, Abraham Lincoln. I mean, I, also... I'm fine disparaging John Wilkes Booth, but let's not say he was a struggling actor. He was very successful. Well, Abraham Lincoln was also a monumentally depressed man who uh, is featured on the five dollar bill, and which I believe also features a pyramid. So I haven't looked at a five in a really long time. Dun, but... dun, dun. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, you only got... deal in you only deal in hundos. <laughs> I just mean since 2020, I haven't touched a lot of cash. Okay, so uh, the point of this comic book, the comic book exchange thing, is very interesting because like he's following this. There's an LA lore going on. There's this owl woman, and what is the owl woman punishing people for just hanging out? The owl's kiss. She. Uh, he believes that she is a representative of a uh, global cult of financial dealers and that she murders people who get too close to the truth. And this seems like a pretty straightforward uh, reference to Bohemian Grove. You guys know Bohemian Grove? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's um... Oh, no. Aaron doesn't know Bohemian Grove. I don't know Bohemian Grove. You've no. got some fun Wikipedia diving to do later. <laughs> Yeah, um, uh, Richard Nixon famously said some homophobic things about it. <laughs> Great. It's it's the like big summer camp for all of the uh, wealthy freaks who get together to do weird pageants involving owls and pee outside a lot. Oh, and God. They, they, I all believe right. they burn a massive owl, right? Yeah, they burn an owl effigy. And uh, yeah, uh, Alex Jones and John Ronson in the book Them, I believe, go and... Uh, watch one of the rituals from the woods interesting that's the only john ronson book i think beside that i've haven't read i own it but one of these days yeah it climaxes with them sneaking in and alex jones at this point is not quite alex jones he's just sort of a a fringe texas kook who uh who goes with ronson on the adventure yeah yeah this is during like the link later waking life kind of era not the later era when he realized he could make a lot more money being a, a uh Nazi? A less um, fun conspiracy theorist? Yeah. Like, you uh, move from X-Files conspiracy theorist to, like, uh, yeah, Nazi conspiracy theorist. <laughs> yeah. The comic book guy is, like, obsessed with this this uh, this kiss, kiss of the owl, um, owl's kiss, um, who's a naked, beautiful woman who will assassinate you for getting too close to the truth. And, and the this- actress, sorry, the actress uh, of whom is not credited in the end credits. She is a mystery. Although the actress who played her posted on Instagram about it. So it's not that much of a mystery, but they kept it a mystery. That's Meryl Streep. though. I mean, it's kind of weird for SAG reasons, but it's kind of fun. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, very, has very strange, unearthly sort of movements um, and kills the comic book guy. Um, which Sam figures out by going back to his house later and watching the tape in a scene that I find very scary. Yeah. Um, I do like that this movie has like two or three sequences that are just imbued with straight horror. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think that conspiracy movies sometimes don't lean into enough how scary the shit is that there's just like, they've got a million people out there that can just like get in your house and kill you. I mean, yeah. one of the scariest scenes I've ever seen that's in a non-horror movie is in Michael Clayton when they break into the house. And um, just put that guy down. <laughs> put the injection well, in his feet. I mean, we've also talked about how scary we generally find cult movies. And that's, I mean, cult movies usually are about some sort of, like, powerful conspiracy. Whether it's, like, Rosemary's Baby or, like, The Empty Man or something like that. Where it's like, oh, they have some far-reaching influence to fuck with you. And that's sometimes it's scarier than, like, the, the unstoppable killer. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, yeah. But the, the point here is that he's chasing down these leads. He starts with the zine with the dog killer that sort of is in the background. We'll talk. We'll come back to that later. But as we get further along, we got, the, movie, the other big guy is Topher. Is, what? Oh, Topher, Topher Grace. Topher is there, I think, for thematic color. I don't know if he has any plot significance. Um, the only thing I like, I, and Ethan, I'm curious your take on this. Um, and I'm less curious Peter's, but he's allowed to contribute to it. Um, it's, he has a drone. 
And he, so Tover Grace is kind of like this burnout guy, a little bit like him, a little more successful, maybe. I think he has money. He has money. Yeah, he has. He has a good house, and because I mean, he bought a drone, so he has drone money in 2011. But he also, like, where did you? He must be independently but, wealthy because the way they know each other is they are drinking in the morning at a bar. Topher Grace's character is just called Bar Buddy, and yeah. they are have a lot of time to be drinking in the morning. <laughs> yeah, and one and uh, like now having someone having a drone is very uh, unimpressive and lame. But he's like, "Holy cow! How did you get that?" He's like, "Amazon, dude! You can get anything up there." He's using this drone, and he immediately uses it to, uh, you know, find a a a woman who's like uh, in a bra or starting to disrobe, which is obviously a callback to like um, the beginning of the movie, where that is what, uh, in his less uh, financially sound way, with little tiny shitty binoculars, he's you know spying on women that are close enough to be able to see with binoculars. Now now him and his bar buddy are spying on a woman that has no idea that they're there and is looking like she's in some sort of state of distress or sadness. And it like stays on her for a long time, just in her bra. And they kind of say to each other, say anything, and then they eventually are like, I gotta I gotta go. Like and it feels like in that moment, Sam has recognized the sadness of what Bar Buddy is doing or what he's doing. I like I got the sense that it was the one time in the movie where like they didn't say anything. They're fixating on this voyeuristic act that is becoming more and more sad as they're watching, and he kind of gets out of there because he can't deal with like, oh shit, this is creepy. Yeah. I think that the paranoia, the guy, yeah, the guy obviously discusses, like, social media as the 21st century paranoia. He's sort of relating the socio-political theory that, like, we're not supposed to know these many people. We're not supposed to be connected to these many people. Sort of goes back to the idea that, like, we used to be in traveling nomadic groups or small villages, and now we're all connected in with each other and we're paranoid because we're constantly some level of performance and some level of socialization. We're never alone. And then as he's saying this, he's horribly violating someone's privacy. And I feel like with all the Hitchcock references, this is clearly supposed to be like a 21st century riff on Rear Window. Um, But the idea is that in Rear Window, everyone in this very charming Manhattan apartment complex kind of has this thing where if you don't want anybody to see you close your curtains if you don't particularly care what's going on you open your curtains and eventually you kind of forget what you're sharing with the outside world and not and there's this sort of charm because it's like jimmy stewart being like i can i can see what's going on but i want like a closer look the creepiness starts to exude further in the movie as he escalates things but there's sort of like a charm to that voyeurism um depending on the way you look at it here there's nothing charming about it it's just pure invasion of privacy using technology that was developed for the military. Um, and uh, and it's the point here, I think, that, like, I think comes back to, like, what I, my overall point in the movie is that, like, there's nothing romantic and, and cool here to uncover. This is just an act of sadness. This yeah. is just pathetic and gross. Um the conspiracy theories that Sam are chasing down is just pathetic and gross. Like, you get to the bottom of things, and then you're just like, I, I, I feel dirty. I don't know. Ethan, did, did you get anything else from the old Topher Grace character? Well, from the scene with the woman in the, in the bra in particular, it's also Sam positions himself as somebody who is trying to help a woman 
who ultimately doesn't need any help or want any help. Um, and then in this is, or is this, able to be helped. Right. This is the one scene where he is confronted with a woman who actually seems to be in tangible distress and he can't cope with it and just walks away. And so there is this theme. A lot emerges in the screenplay to this. If you're interested in this movie, I really recommend reading the screenplay, which is almost written like a novel. There's so much description. And he links three characters, David Robert Mitchell. He links Travis Bickle. Uh, Ethan Edwards from The Searchers and Mario as three characters who are connected to Sam as like Avengers who go after trying to save a woman who arguably is not in need of saving. Um, And so this this is that this is him as somebody who believes he is the champion of the uh, oppressed. But the minute, like I say, he is confronted with somebody who actually seems to be in genuine distress. It's just I'm out of here. Yeah, the Mario connection is fucking amazing. Not only because it's so accurate and obviously has a lot of callbacks to Nintendo, but when he thinks he's finally found where she is, they she's literally in say castle. she's in another castle. That's amazing. That rules. And yeah, then sorry, just I, like, I, I cut you off. You could have said it first. I'm so sorry. No. no, no, it's it's amazing. And then instead of being like, I'm going to go to the other castle, he's like, I think the polite, the right choice is to put the controller down. <laughs> I think my journey ends here. <laughs> yeah. Um that's 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 amazing. Did you did you get that from that scene or was there anything else cuz it, it feels like it's it's just a silent moment of like recognition he he leaves almost without saying goodbye or quick goodbyes and it feels like the only point in the movie where he has some recognition that what he's doing is weird and creepy. Yeah, I buy that. Yeah, and I mean, it also feeds into the overall theme of, like, women being traded like commodities, right? Like, women aren't really people in this movie. Um, and yeah. I don't think that's the director not realizing that. I think that's the entire thematic purpose. Yeah. Um. So where where should we go next? I mean, there's there's so many other, like, conspiracy plots. Should we talk about the, what is it, the Starlight crew? Or? Shooting stars or something like that? Shooting stars, yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's a and the, the Millicent Sevens uh, plotline resolves, um, but that I guess just leads you directly to the end. We've almost talked about the whole thing just in its circuitous yeah. way. Yeah, yeah, I think it's appropriate that we don't talk about it in the order that it's presented, though. Yeah, but yes, the I think that there's some other sort of threads that lead us to some points I'd like to get to before the yeah. end. So, um, Millicent Sevens is the daughter of the famous uh, billionaire. And she has a indeterminate knowledge. It seems like she's kind of locked out in the fact that um, her dad is is spending eternity in a pyramid below the earth and is eventually going to get on like some version of the Hale-Bopp comet. I don't know. Um, and uh, she doesn't seem aware of that fact. She doesn't seem to have too much information for him, but he still is like wants to explore that. And while we're on this, um, this excursion, I think, two at least two notable things happen before she dies one he runs into his ex-girlfriend um yes. who is also an actor but has moved into just doing commercials she does billboards yeah um and is now and we, we had seen her on a billboard that he stared at for a long time and i forget the slogan on the billboard. i can see clearly now yeah which felt like that's why he was staring at it because it he thought it was some sort of message from the universe and then you find out it's just his ex-girl yeah. i also think it's a it's a great gatsby thing personally the eyes on yeah. the billboard, looking down yeah. and judging Los Angeles's iniquities. I mean, he does meet. 
her and her new fiance, who's like a little bit more prim and proper. Maybe he has money already. You know, it's it's a it does feel like a Gatsby thing. They're they're by a pool. <laughs> um, oh shit, Millicent dies in a pool. Well, it's a reservoir. Um, but uh, the point is that two things happen. One, we get this really ties into the ending for me, um, which is that you. Um, you find out that he had uh, this ex-girlfriend and she's kind of moved on and you can, it, it feels like maybe she, she negotiated with reality. She wanted to be a big star, but now she's doing commercials. Um, and she also like realized that this guy wasn't particularly great for her. So she just found a guy that was like, maybe, maybe not only maybe is he healthier for her, but like, he just has like money. He has like. Yeah. More of a role to play. I don't see her as being traded like a commodity like the Sevens guy. Maybe she is, maybe she isn't. Um, but she's like figured out some sort of stability in this crazy world and he's still just kind of riding along the wave. Another thing that happens is that he sees a homeless person and then he starts ranting to her about how much uh, he hates homeless people. Obviously very interesting because one of his allies on his journey is the homeless king. Um, but also he is, he is from basically the moment we meet him on the verge of homelessness. He is within a week of homelessness and has not worked, uh, in some time. Um, and I feel like a lot of the movie comes back to, you know, a lot of it can be explained by his sense of loneliness. He doesn't have a dog. He doesn't have a girlfriend. He doesn't have a sense of direction, but also his fear of just like being economically pushed out the window, um, because this country doesn't take care of people that don't pay their bills. Country doesn't yeah. do that. He's got a backup plan, which we'll talk about at the end of the movie. Um, we'll uh, a much so a couple pyramid. couple things that's worse. Yeah, there he does discover through this like we we kind of talked about the decoding the music and running into the guy who writes all like literally. There's a guy he lives on top of a hill. There's this. It's a great map painting. Uh, looks like something out of fucking Citizen Kane. Um, or well, that, Xanadu. or or anchors away. I think it is where uh, Gene Kelly and and Jerry Mouse yeah. are walking off into the distance. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he has like guitars from like Jimi Hendrix and Nirvana. There's a big runner where he's a uh, uh, Sam's obsessed with Nirvana, and there's a lot of posters and references. He's he's a he's a '90s kid. Like plays Nintendo, loves Nirvana. Uh, hasn't moved. I love he has Kurt's signature, but by Beanie. <laughs> My Francis yeah. Bean. Yeah, 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 yeah. My, um, and so, yeah, he goes up there and, like, this person, like, is this... Uh, I, at first, I thought it was Tom Waits. It's not Tom Waits. I don't think it's anyone too recognizable. But um, He's a character he actor. Is, he's in some HBO shows, like Boardwalk Empire. He's also in the Nick. Yeah. yeah, but he basically starts telling him, like, I've written all the songs and does, like, this melody of, like, every, you know... Like, a YouTube melody of, like, look at all the songs I've written... Um, which I think is a very funny scene. Sometimes it's just fun to pick out what he's what he's doing. Like I, I loved when like "Where Is My Mind" pops in there, and there's some other ones. And it is he like a, a like, he did a lot of references to insanity or losing one sense of sanity or uh, mental instability. Crazy Train is in there too. I I also think part of it is too because of the Nirvana connection. Nirvana owes so much to the Pixies and has said as much that like noting that he didn't just write the Nirvana song that he knows because he plays smells like Teen Spirit, but like what inspired Nirvana, quote unquote, is is great. Um, uh, and there's a shootout and he kills him. Uh, which well, is just just to to stick on the songwriter thing for just yeah. another second. What I love about that that scene it's it's a little has nothing to do with anything to an extent. 
Yeah. But what I love is just that it it robs Sam of the very idea of artistic integrity, which is yeah. such a crushing blow to somebody who surrounds themselves with pop culture ephemera is there is that's that is where the scales fall fall from his eyes and everything is a corporation and nothing matters. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really it's it, I, there's a few things I really like about this scene. Uh one um, that it has just a straight up horror movie gore moment where you watch a skull, an actual skull like, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. model get crushed. Um, two, um, it really speaks to Sam's sense of perspective because what do we think of when we think of neo-noir protagonists? We think of cool, calm, collected, like even, even at the end of the long goodbye, he's been betrayed by his, Elliot Gould has been betrayed by his best friend and or one of his friends um and he's uncovered this conspiracy and you know his life was at risk all of that he doesn't like go and hit him in the head with a fucking hammer he just calmly shoots him and then walks down the lane right like we think of noir protagonists as being kind of so jaded that they're beyond having these out out outsized emotional reactions he kills this guy there's no real reason for him to for the plot this guy wasn't well he was shooting him he was shooting at him but like for the plot like killing the songwriter or whatever like i guess pop music's gonna be shittier after this i don't know (laughs) it's not like less evil less evil (laughs) i don't i don't totally only deep cuts yeah (laughs) um i don't i just don't totally know like you know other than his complete sense of rage and lack of lack of true dedication to uncovering this mystery because he probably could have gotten more information out of this guy if he really wanted to he's been around for a long time he's seen a lot of fucked up shit yeah but even then like like you said it doesn't matter too much because he doesn't need to know why there's codes he just needs to solve the code He just needed confirmation that he was on the right track. And then alongside that confirmation, he got this blow to his soul. Like, not only are these songs full of codes, they're only codes. You thought maybe they were a heart that also had to get this message across. Just the message. I want to talk about, so all this, he does discover that... There is a conspiracy, which we've talked about, which is these rich people who put themselves in pyramids, theoretically to leave, to have their souls ascend. Although how much the men involved believe that, I, I'm, I'm unclear. But anyways, it's, it's mostly just like, yeah, it's my soul's ascend, but also I have three women that I've picked out that will be servicing me while they like watch TV and hang out. Uh, an inability to escape, which I think is important. Like they, the only escape is theoretically death within the pyramid, uh, or the promise of ascension. And they have so six months. They have six months of supplies, and then after that point, yeah. everyone in there will starve to death. Or I, I'm yeah. guessing a lot of these guys bring a, a gun or something with, or they'll ascend, or more supplies, or they ascend. You know, yeah. Ethan's got a good point. They can also... Why, why wouldn't they just ascend? Yeah. I forgot that they could ascend. I forgot the... <laughs> yeah. Such a skeptic, Peter. Um, against Pyramid Ascension. Anyways, the, there's an amazing scene because they he gets all this from this other the, these other people that are about to do it. But they're like, hey, Sarah's already done this. Like, she's in a different pyramid that we buried under concrete. She literally can't escape. And they're kind of like, yeah, you can call her because he has a gun. Like, you can call her. You can video call her. They do have incoming calls, not outgoing, because that's a funny little, like, you know, 
We won't want them to. The, to there were out. some problems, as he says. There were some problems, yeah. But they're all like in a in a way that like for these cult members, I do think they have a sense of like, hey, like if you're gonna call her, you can't rescue her. So like, be nice about it, right? And I love the scene where he calls her, and there's this great scene where they they're just kind of watching TV, and they're like, oh yeah, Sarah's in the other room. It's like so boring. They're not doing weird cult stuff. They're literally like just sitting around and watching, I think, literally the little rascals on TV. And Sarah, they get Sarah to the phone and he's just like, you know, it's awkward. They don't have anything, you know, again, they don't have any connection. All the connection, all the saving, everything else has been in his head. And now he still needs to talk to her because he is obsessed with this thing. And he realizes he's reached the end of the line. And that scene of just, like, awkward pauses, no, like, emotional moments, no, you got to get out of there. And finally, she's just like, do you think I've made a mistake? And he's like, maybe? <laughs> and she just says, oh. And, like, that moment is so perfect because, I like, it's it's a little bit hard to describe, but I think where why I think it's perfect is that idea of, like, how many times do you want to talk to someone? How many examples of this in your real life where, like, you, nothing you can say can actually make the situation better? Actually, the only thing you can do is make it worse. Whether it's, like, you know, a kid who's finding out something major or, uh, you know, probably something that doctors go through more than I personally having to deliver bad news and, like, trying to toe the line of, like, I have to say something. But how can I say something that like doesn't make you now just make the entire situation work? Because if I say yes, you made a mistake. You have to, you doesn't matter if you made a mistake. The decision is made. The die is cast. You're stuck there. And the way that he kind of like implies through this search that she now knows has occurred through a very mysterious labyrinthian uh, conspiracy that she's at least somewhat aware of that it must be hard to to find her and then just. They have no connection. All he has to offer her is doubt into death is like such a perfect way of like the man that came to save the day only made the situation somewhat worse and didn't even solve anything for himself besides the end of his literally reason to ignore everything in his life and focus on. And like, I might not be describing it too well, but there's just something so perfect with the thematically of like useless men of like yeah i didn't save the day i didn't give you comfort <laughs> i just made the situation slightly worse and now i i made some doubt swirl in your head for the rest of your life yeah i planted a seed for the next miserable <laughs> yeah. five point whatever months yeah. left of your life um yeah I, I to jump off that a little bit i see something else in there which is that the reason why did she get here um she wanted to marry a millionaire. She ended up selecting one that ended up being part of a pyramid cult. Um, she ended following... A scheme, up, if you would. Yeah, um, following that pyramid cult down there. Um, and being a, um, a use, useful partner or whatever to him. Um, in the most I use that word the, with the most derision possible. Um, she is... She chased a fantasy. Right? She chased the How to Marry a Millionaire fantasy. She chased it for a while. And now she's down here living out the, the lifestyle that a billionaire wants her to live with her. But it's a confined, nobody else allowed in, kind of boxed in experience. 
And now that they're all down there, what good is it to shatter that fantasy? That fantasy is now the truly the only thing keeping her sane down there. Yeah. Like, that fantasy is all she has left. She has that and, I don't know, a few bricks of weed, some good food in the freezer, sex with people she's been having sex with for a long time. Yeah. That's, that's it. That's, that's the whole game. And, like, you end up in this situation where, like, exactly, like, oh, I can, a detective is supposed to unravel the mysteries and is supposed to be a truth teller, even if the truth is inconvenient. Um, you can make an argument at the end of some of these neo-noirs, especially, like, you know, at the end of Chinatown, is anybody better off for the truth having come out? No. I don't, I don't particularly think so. This is a movie where he's like, he, he comes to the realization because like another evil billionaire was like, hey man, by doing this, by telling her that, like you're actually giving her an act of cruelty. All she's got left is his fantasy. And then he's kind of like, oh, well, I guess I might as well get buried with you guys as well. And then is deemed unworthy by the homeless king in a scene and in a very funny scene. Where he's like in some sort of weird, like fucking Indiana Jones cave and being. <laughs> was, I think, where they found the Lost Ark. But I took away the point here because he questions about the dog treats that's in his pocket. And he goes out at night constantly, is a big part of his existence. And he always has dog treats on him. And he says it's to remember his dog. But he basically, the homeless king finds him not worthy. I believe the implication is that he's actually in like his weird fugue state in depression existence that he has been uh, killing ducks. That is my take. That he is the dog killer. Ethan, what do you what do you think about this whole? What do you think about that scene with the dog treats and carrying dog treats? What do you, and the dog killer thing? What do you think about that? Before I get in there. I think the question of whether Sam is the dog killer is basically unresolvable. I think Aaron's got the most reasonable. Uh, answer to well, it. Well, I trust the I trust the homeless king's judgment. Yeah, as we all should. Um, so I I don't find it very interesting if he is for whatever reason that that line of thought just doesn't do anything for me. Hmm. Um, I think I like it better as a as a dangling thread that exists thematically. I guess what I kind of like. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, Peter. finish your thought, please. I was going to say. I guess the part of the reason I actually like it. Is the same reason I like the Vanna White thing. When we are introduced to Sam, he seems like a relatable all-American boy. He came out for some dream of being extraordinary. He's a good-looking fella. He has, you know, he loves movies and loves pop culture-related stuff. He, um, you know, he just seems like an eminently relatable movie character detective that you're rooting for. And one thing I like is the way... And part of this is the way he solves the mystery is the way the movie keeps revealing that, like, that kind of connection that we have with this person is, like, based on our own, like, reverse prejudices to relate to this person. Because throughout the movie, same reason I like the Vanna White stuff, it's like, oh, um, there's something way more off that we're missing here. And, like, um, 
like he starts out doing something that is like I think most people would say not a good thing for someone to do, and it's easy for us to like pass by that because it's like, what? Well, it's a beautiful woman. He's you know who doesn't like looking at a beautiful woman? But he's also just a leering creep sitting on his balcony with binoculars, and he's been calculating how many times Vanna White glances off screen. So I think the revelation of him being sort of a really sick individual, as you noted at the beginning, to the point that like. In some sort of, like, maybe he killed his dog, maybe the death of his dog inspired him to go do that. Like, I think it kind of works to move him away from likable Andrew Garfield protagonist to kind of the villain of the movie, which I think he is thematically. And I like the idea of it becoming a little more literal. But I also get your point, Ethan. It's not like, it's not, it's something that, what is your impression of it and how it relates to the character or the bigger picture? It's not specifically solvable. And ultimately, it doesn't matter about beyond your impression of it. I kind of like that we've drawn a, um, a line line graph where uh, Aaron, you're here, I'm over here, and uh, Ethan, it seems like you're in this middle space, or a third point that's all the way over here in the it doesn't fucking matter zone. Um, that's, that's, that's your call. Um, but uh, along the continuum between he's the dog killer and he's not the dog killer, I'm firmly on he's not the dog killer. And I think that thematically this scene really brings it together for me. And the placement of this scene is really important because after all you've been through kind of who the dog killer is, he feels a little irrelevant, right? Like it's not the broad mystery. That was more like an ominous setup thing. Yeah. It's like, why is it so important that we solve this at this point in the movie after he's been brought low, his he's reached the bottom of this mystery and he's found a bunch of pathetic men that want to literally be underground with their possessions including three women um and they hate the world so much they want to die in a, in a glorious fashion or they've made concocted some way to die that uh doesn't feel like a suicide cult to them it's just the universe in this in this world uh bends towards the pitiful and the pathetic and I feel like the answer I keep coming up with with these characters is pitiful and pathetic not necessarily um dangerous and conspiratorial um and the way that i read this ending is that he pulled so the homeless king is solving a mystery as well he's like why did i find these fucking dog treats in your pocket and similar to something in the dirt i feel like this is sort of a moment that the movie is actually perhaps trying to head off people that are gonna run to youtube and do a video and saying Sam, the dog killer the whole time? It feels like this movie is trying to head off that or, or criticize people that would, like, get really into, in this scene, you can prove that uh, this happens, which means in this scene, this happens. Like, And basically turn a movie about, about how dangerous conspiracy theories are into a conspiracy theory of its own. I feel like the point of this scene is that he pulls out the dog treats and you're like, oh, is Sam supposed to be the killer? And then, my, and then as the scene goes on, what Sam reveals to the homeless king is he's like, I, I'm just really alone and I miss my dog and I carry these treats around like with the hope that like, you know, I can recapture this really, it's just a habit I have still from the old days when I wasn't alone. And he's someone that still holds on to these habits. He's still, he's still someone that has so much, so much pop culture ephemera. He's still holding out a Nintendo power magazines, right? He's got (laughs) artifacts of, of former lives, right? And I'm not saying it's pathetic to hold on to retro gaming shit or whatever, but you get the point that I'm saying, right? Um, yeah. 
And I feel like the truth is a sadder, more pitiful, more pathetic answer, which is that, like, no, this isn't this isn't the resolution of some grand mystery that we still don't know who the dog killer is in my mind. I think that this is just acknowledging that the reason Sam acts this way is because he misses his dog. He misses the life that he briefly led when he moved to L.A. and was still full of hope. And if he stops carrying dog treats around, like, what's left of him? Yeah. That's the way I Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a, yeah, I get it. Uh, I do think he's a, he's a creep. He's a weirdo. He's, he's a creep, the, yeah. What the hell is he doing here? He doesn't belong here. <laughs> also, um, the movie is full of coyotes, and coyotes love to eat dogs. I just want to note, there may not be a dog killer at all. The dog killer may be coyotes. Uh, I was informed that they prefer roadrunners, but that's just my research. Do your own. <laughs> they prefer, but they can't always find them. Find me a roadrunner in LA. Ethan, what are some of your final thoughts on this movie? Well, we, we basically hit all of them in context. Um, I think this is just a really special, unique movie. There's nothing else like it. Um, I think it just feels, like I said, so... Um, tuned in to a very particular wavelength of of ominousness uh that feels like david robert mitchell was really soaking in something and and really soaking some stuff up um and then it just has so much style it's it's such like it's it's pop art about pop art which is something i always love um I don't know. I'm I'm gonna watch it again, and I'm gonna notice more things, and and that's something else I always love. So, good movie. This is a good movie. Yeah, this shouldn't be under the Silver Lake. Should be under the Gold Lake. This gets the gold medal. Uh, yeah, I don't. I I agree. I was so happy. I was. This is a movie that like I feel like everyone was giving three stars to, and it was two and a half hours, and I'm like, man, um, you know, I this when the when the like neo noir thing doesn't work. It, I feel like it really doesn't work. And I was worried that's what I was going to get here. Um, and I was so, you know, sometimes like picking movies like that for the show is perfect. Cause it's like, you know, it's out of my hands. It's fate. I can't do anything about it. I'm watching it. Uh, and I'm so glad that I did because I ended up really, really uh, loving it. And uh, yeah, I would definitely watch this again as well uh and it was yeah fun to talk with ethan who is the uh obsessed with this movie in an unhealthy way to join us way too yes. late into the night yeah peter any final thoughts before we wrap no i think uh i think i, I think i said what i wanted to say i feel like the the core theme of pitiful and pathetic is is really where i want to leave things yeah, especially as three men record a podcast into the night. About it. <laughs> Here, give me, <laughs> give me, give me a number between one and twenty-five. Fourteen. Thirteen. Wait. God damn it. Wait, what was it? <laughs> <laughs> he said he said thirteen. I said fourteen. Go with thirteen. Okay, I'm gonna say thirteen. Um, I I wrote a essay, like I said, with uh twenty-five footnotes in it, and let's see what footnote number thirteen is. Uh. Oh, it's it's just me putting a footnote where I explain more of the plot. <laughs> That's the kind 14. of movie this is. Fourteen. Not explain. Fourteen. Four, Fourteen is where I say that uh, that I really hope it's not completely uh, pathetic to analyze this movie as hard as I am. There we go. Fourteen. <laughs> That's per. That's thematically appropriate. Um, That's our close. 
We will link to that essay. I actually didn't read it before we talked because I didn't want to just end up being like, as part of my research, I'm referencing something that my friend and guest on this podcast has written. So uh, I've avoided. I'm going to read it tonight and we will link to it in the show notes. Peter, what are we doing next month? You might not know. I tend to manage oh, the schedule. So. Uh, next <laughs> month, you know? we're, we're, we're trying to, before we take a little break in the winter, we're trying to do some more Star Trek movies. We're going to wrap up the Star Trek movies. Mm-hmm. That is the plan. We are going to do Star Trek 2009, Star Trek Into Darkness, Star Trek Beyond. The Going into this whole project, the only three that – or the only two that Peter had seen were the first two Abrams movies. Mm-hmm. And so we, we're kind of rounding back to where he began, where he then immediately gave up, understandably so. Um, but I'm glad we're going to end with Beyond – um, because, uh, I think Beyond is actually the best of the three and it's a great little, like if that's the last Star Trek movie they make for a while, it's fantastic. I love that movie. Um, so a great way to end. And then technically there is four weeks in September. Uh, so we may end up doing our, uh, season finale that's been going on for four years that we've been talking about doing forever, which is what a lot of people consider the best Star Trek movie, Galaxy Quest. Yeah. But... We will see if we if we get there before some of our Spooktober stuff. Star, even then, we'll talk about this. Star Trek won't be done. We're going to go back and figure out other ways. But we've kind of completed the mission, the first five-year mission, if you would, and got through all the movies. So uh, that's what's coming up in September. We have some fun coming up in October as well. We hope you tune in right here on We Love to Watch. And good luck. Good. for listening to we love to watch if you made it to the end hopefully you liked what you heard today and if you'd like to hear more please go to patreon.com slash we love to watch and if you can chip in a few bucks that would really help us keep the lights on and keep us moving forward uh it wasn't an implicit threat by peter he just didn't know how to say it but either way we'll continue to make more but it would be helpful uh, as we explain to our loved ones where all our money is going which is all on server space uh <laughs> If you can't, (laughs) uh, if you don't have a few bucks to chip in, we totally understand. And you want to support the show. We truly, absolutely would appreciate a uh, review on iTunes. I know every podcast says it, and it's because it really does help. And so every podcast wants that help. So please go leave us a positive review so that when people find this show organically, they hopefully want to tune in and listen. And thanks again for all of your listenership and support and time throughout the years uh we really do appreciate you uh with kisses and smooches peter and aaron